all the change that was contributed to our missions can, and that will definitely go to a worthy cause, some of the missions that we choose to support, particularly today the Compassion International mission that we mentioned a little bit earlier. Now, we're in week 10 of our 10-week series going through the Ten Commandments, one commandment per week that we've been looking at. And before we get started in this tenth and final commandment, let's revisit a couple of the big themes that we've seen so far. You've heard me mention them before. This will be the last time you hear me mention them, so write them down. Find a way to remember them. Number one, the Ten Commandments are not just rules to follow. They're not just some nice suggestions on how to have a better life, an easier life, or just how to be a generally more moral person. That's not the point of the Ten Commandments. These are not things that we follow to force God into blessing us or to somehow make it seem as though God has to show us favor because we've followed all the rules the right way. That's not what the Ten Commandments are about. It's good to view the Ten Commandments as valuable for instruction, but it is not good to view the Ten Commandments as a source of salvation because they aren't a source of salvation. Only Christ is the source of our salvation. So that's theme number one. They're not just rules to follow. Theme number two, the Ten Commandments tell us about the God who saved us. As God lifts these people out of slavery in Egypt and brings them to this new identity of them being his people, his nation, these are people who really haven't known a whole lot about God up to this point. They may have heard a little bit about him from their ancestors. They may have heard stories about how way back in the day, Abraham talked to him, but they haven't really heard much from him. And so as God gives these commandments, he's reintroducing himself to his people and telling them, hey, people, this is what matters to me. And I want it to matter to you, too. This reveals a little bit about who I am and a little bit about my character. So that's theme number two. Theme number three is the Ten Commandments were given to set God's people apart. Following these commandments would make God's people stick out. It would make them different from all the other nations around them who worshipped all the other various gods of the day. And the hope would be that as they follow these commandments, as they worship God, as they stick out, all the other people around them might ask questions and say, all right, well, what's so different about this God of yours? You seem so dedicated to him in the way that you live. What makes him so special? And the Israelite could then say, well, here's what's so special about my God. And in the same way today, we obey God not to force him to bless us, not because we want to be more moral people, not because we want to follow all the rules, but so that we too might stick out. So that people in our everyday lives might say, you know, what's so great about this Jesus guy that you always talk about? What's so special about that Bible that you carry around with you or that you talk about reading from time to time? What's so important about Sunday morning that you dedicate yourself to all that church stuff? We want to stick out so that people might ask questions about the God who saved us, the God who sent his son to die for us. Now, with that, let's quickly recap the nine commandments we've looked at so far. We're not going to go very deep into these, but one by one. Commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. There is no other God worthy of worship. There is no other God worthy of praise. Number two, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. We worship God for who he truly is, not some image that can't contain him or can't do him justice. 
Number three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. We as God's people are called to honor his name through our words, through our actions. And the best way to honor God's name is by proclaiming the name of his son Jesus to anyone who hasn't heard it. Commandment number four, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Every single one of us knows that we all need rest. But the most important rest that we can ever find is the rest that comes through a relationship with Christ, the rest that we look forward to into eternity. Commandment number five, honor your father and your mother. Kid City Sunday people, that's you. Honor your father and your mother. But we are called to honor our parents even if they aren't worthy of honor because we're called to show them the same grace that Christ has shown us. Number six, you shall not murder. Life matters to God. Every single life matters to God, and we are called to respect that and take that seriously, not just with not going so far as to actually murder someone, but treating people with dignity and treating people with respect. Number seven, we're almost done. You shall not commit adultery. God is faithful to his people. God is faithful to the Israelites as he leads them out of slavery, even later when they begin to abandon him from time to time. And so we as followers of Jesus are called to be faithful to our spouses so that our marriages might testify to the love and the grace and the faithfulness that we find in Christ. Number eight, you shall not steal. The only thing worth having is something that you can't steal. And it's something that can't be stolen from you. And that thing is a relationship with Jesus. And then finally, number nine. You shall not bear false witness. We're called to be people of honesty, people who are honest with ourselves about just how lost we were apart from Jesus and just how loved we are now because of what Jesus has done. We're called to be honest with God as we confess our sin, as we confess our doubt, as we have those moments of weakness. And we're called to be honest with one another as followers of Jesus, being that source of encouragement being that source of accountability from time to time when that's needed as well. And we're called to be honest with the gospel, not sacrificing it on the altar of political correctness, not sacrificing it on the altar of cultural expectations. These are things that matter to God. And these are things that are called to matter to us as well. So that brings us to where we are today. Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, the 10th and final commandment. That's the one that says you shall not covet. So if you have a Bible with you, open up with me to Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. If you're using one of our Bibles underneath our chairs, it's going to be on page 53. And if you don't own a Bible, grab one from the welcome desk before you leave today. But before we get into that passage, before we get into this commandment, I'm going to ask that we pray together, that we pray for our time together, and then we'll get going. So if you would, please pray with me. Father... We are grateful that you have given us your word, that we are so privileged to have copies of your word that are so easily accessible. And there are so many people around the world who would who would do anything to have access to your word. And God, you have taught us a lot over these last nine weeks. I know you're going to teach us more today. And we're just grateful for that. And so, God, I pray that as we read your word together, as we hear what it means when you say that we shall not covet that you'll just give us clear minds, that you'll give us open hearts, that we can leave some of the baggage that we often carry around with us at the door and just be open to whatever it is that your spirit and your word will say to us this morning. So, God, we love you. We thank you. We are privileged to have this time together and this time with you. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. 
Amen. All right. Well, this past week, a congregant who will remain nameless brought me a copy of this. This is GQ, the latest copy of GQ magazine. Now, you may be wondering why in the world do I have GQ magazine? And when I was given it, I was wondering, did I do something wrong with my fashion? Is this is this some subtle way of saying that I really need to change the way I dress or something? But it actually wasn't that at all. The reason this unnamed congregant brought this to me is that there is a story on the very front cover and the story is titled Holy Moses. We updated your commandments. Please don't strike us dead. Now, number one, I just want to throw this out there. Some of you may have been thinking all throughout this series, why are we looking at the Ten Commandments? This doesn't matter anymore. This is Old Testament stuff. Why can't we just focus on Jesus? This isn't relevant. Well, it's relevant. It's on the cover of GQ. So I just want to rub that in your face, number one. But then number two, I thought that would be interesting to look a little bit about what GQ has to say about the Ten Commandments. And GQ says this about the Tenth Commandment. This is their updated version of you shall not covet. They write, try not to be a pig, will you? That's their version of the 10th commandment. Okay. But then they also add this paragraph. According to Yahweh, merely thinking about driving your neighbor's car is enough to bring down his wrath. Come on. Our whole economy is based on covetousness. And do you really expect me to exert full control over my jealous impulses? This commandment is tantamount to thought crime. And it's completely unrealistic. Now, GQ may be on to something a little bit there. There may be some truth to what they say about the fact that it is somewhat unrealistic to think that every single one of us is going to follow the Ten Commandments at all times. That we're going to follow it perfectly. Now, their reasoning may be a little bit different. I would argue that because of the sin in the world, that's going to be a hard thing to accomplish. They may have other motivations, but there might be some truth to what they're saying. It is unrealistic. Now, I think they're a little bit too eager to either say, A, we update them, or B, they're irrelevant, but let's take the good and leave the bad. It is unrealistic to think that all of us are going to fulfill these commandments. We've already talked about that. That is impossible for us to do. And GQ is on to something because The argument could be made that this is one of the most difficult commandments to follow in our world today. Because it really comes back to an issue that every single one of us is wrestling with. Every single one of us, regardless of where you come from, regardless of how big your bank account is, regardless of how much education you have, put all of that stuff away. And we have one thing in common, and that's this, that every single person in some shape, form or fashion is looking for contentment. We're looking for contentment. So look at Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, the real 10th commandment, not the GQ version. Verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, the reason I think this is such a particularly dangerous commandment is that it affects all of us. At times, even when we don't fully realize it, especially living in the society that we do, that is so saturated with consumerism, we don't even realize how much we actually covet. John Calvin writes, for if by law covetousness is not dragged from its lair, it destroys wretched men so secretly 
that they do not even feel its fatal stab. Calvin seems to indicate that this is a particularly sneaky sin. It's one of those sins that you don't even realize that you're really wrestling with half the time. It's kind of like that thief in the night who hides in the shadows and you think you're safe, but then in the moment that you realize that you might be in danger, it's too late because the thief is already right on top of you and there's nothing that you can do. And that stab can be fatal. Another one of the dangers of coveting is it so often leads to other sin. Think about the infamous story of David and Bathsheba. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. We read a little bit about the background in that story. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. So here we see David. The king of Israel in a time where Israel really couldn't be any higher than they already are. They're successful. They're respected. They are very wealthy. Everything seems to be going well for David and going well for the entire kingdom. Yet it appears as though David, he's in kind of a rut. This is the time of year when all the other kings go out to battle. This is what kings live for. They go out and they expand their borders and they bring in all kinds of things that they win from battles and their influence expands and their legacy is built and all these things the king is called to find joy in. And yet, David, he stays home. He doesn't want to be a part of it. He's in a bit of a rut. It's almost as if everything that once made him content has all of a sudden lost its luster. Look at verses 2 and 3 of 2 Samuel chapter 11. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David goes out on the roof. He sees Bathsheba bathing. And for those of you who might be thinking, well, why is she bathing on a rooftop? That really says a little bit about her. That was actually very common in that day. And yet David seems to be letting his eyes wander a little bit more than usual. So he goes out on the roof. He sees Bathsheba bathing and he decides that he wants to be with her. And so he asks about her. And someone says, now, wait a minute, David. I know she's beautiful, but she's married. And this is not a good idea. This is not your wife. You really shouldn't do this. But David sends for her anyway. So he spends this time with Bathsheba. And David's inability to control his desire, his inability to control that covetousness, leads to a laundry list of problems for David. Think about the commandments alone that he broke in this sin. He breaks number seven. He commits adultery. He breaks number eight. He steals the wife of someone who trusted him and honored him. He breaks number nine. He bears false witness by trying to cover up his sin from God and cover up his sin from other people. And he breaks number six because he indirectly has Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, murdered in the field of battle. Now, don't get me wrong here. All sin is deadly. I don't want to mince words about that at all, but this sin of covening seems to have some deep ramifications and it leads to a very tangled web of sin. And David can testify to that. 
So number one, covetousness is often so sneaky that we don't even realize it when it shows up. Number two, it leads to a laundry list of other sins at times. And then number three, the sin of coveting is contagious. I mean, think about it. We get something really, really nice because we coveted someone else who had it. And then someone sees the thing that we get and they covet us. And the cycle just keeps on going and keeps on going and keeps on going because everyone's looking for contentment. And we often buy into the lie that it is impossible for us to be content if someone else has more than we do. Finally, one more problem that is particularly relevant for us today as followers of Jesus when it comes to covetousness is that coveting can prevent us from loving our neighbors. Look back at that verse, Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. The word that is emphasized over and over, your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's servants, your neighbor's livestock, anything that is your neighbor's. Now, the problem with that is that Jesus tells us that the two things that his followers, more than anything else, are called to do is love God and love their neighbor. It's hard to love your neighbor when all you can think about is the jealousy that you have for their stuff. It's hard to love your neighbor when you look at them and all you can think about is how you deserve that thing more than they do. And you worked harder than they did. And yet they have everything that you want. And if you just had that stuff, then you'd be happy. Then you'd be content. You think about celebrity reality shows. So often they find their appeal and the fact that we watch them and we sit back and wonder, what would it be like if I had all the stuff that they had? What would it be like if my life was like theirs? We watch Cribs on MTV and CMT and we see these shows and we see the houses and we see the garages and we say, man, I would love to have that stuff. I would love to have those exotic cars. I can't imagine what my life would be like if I just had those things. If only I had somebody else's money, I'd be so much happier. I wouldn't be so stressed about having to make ends meet all the time. If only I had somebody else's degree, I'd be so much more respected in my field. If only I had somebody else's career, I'd be so much more successful than I am right now. If only I had somebody else's influence, I'd be so much more powerful than I am right now. The married person might think, you know, if I only had their marriage, then I'd finally be content. Or if only I had married that other person way back in the day, then I'd be content. The single person might think, if only I had a marriage at all, then I'd be content. Meanwhile, the married person thinks, if only I had their singleness, I'd finally have more freedom. You see the web that this thing weaves? It affects every single one of us. The fall of man all goes back to a lie that appealed to this idea of covetousness. Adam, Eve, why can't you have that kind of power that God has? Why can't you have that kind of knowledge? Why can't you have that wisdom? Go ahead and eat from the fruit. Who is God to hog all that power and all that knowledge and all that wisdom to himself? Shouldn't you have those things too? This all comes back to a lack of contentment, a desire to have more instead of appreciating what we already have. So, what's the solution? 
Well, for some people, the solution to covetousness is just to continue feeding it, continue acquiring things, continue acquiring stuff in hopes that maybe one of these days, even though the track record seems to say that stuff isn't going to make me content, maybe one of these days I finally will find that one thing that will make me content and all my problems will go away. Some people try that solution. For other people, the solution is the complete opposite extreme to where they swear off material possessions entirely. They view material things as inherently evil or inherently sinful. And so they just seek to completely eliminate desire. Well, neither one of those things is the solution to covetousness. Neither one of those things is the solution to a lack of contentment. It's not continuing to feed our covetousness. It's not swearing off desire completely. The solution is to reorient our desire from those things that leave us malcontent to those things, that one thing that will leave us content. And that thing is God himself. Remember the first commandment, Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. That's the commandment that says, you shall have no other gods before me. We see in that commandment that God wants every single part of us, every single part of our lives, our worship, our praise, our loyalty, our devotion, our affection, all of it. God sees it and he wants it for him and for him alone. And this 10th commandment, this one speaks to us. It shows that the first commandment says that God wants all of us. And in the 10th commandment, we learn that we are called to want nothing but God. To find contentment in him and in him alone. You know, the Apostle Paul really got that. He's someone who really understood that. Look at Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. Paul writes there, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul's been through it all. He's been through good times, and he's seen bad times. He's seen success, and he's seen failure. He's seen glory and he's seen shame. And as he writes this letter to the Philippians, he finds himself in prison for the sake of the gospel. And the reason Paul can say that I'm content, even though I'm sitting here in chains, is because he realized that all he needed to be content was Christ. Think about what C.S. Lewis writes in his book, The Weight of Glory. C.S. Lewis writes, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. C.S. Lewis's point there is that so often in our covetousness, we orient our desire towards things that get outdated, things that fade away, things that ultimately will not 
leave us content. We're like that kid who would rather play with mud pies than accept the incredible gift of a vacation at the sea. That's the idea that C.S. Lewis gets at. We are far too easily pleased. And Paul seems to understand that in Christ, we are offered the greatest gift in all the universe. We're offered a transforming relationship with the perfect Savior who died for us. But instead, we often stumble around like blind beggars looking for food, not realizing that there is a loaf of bread right under our noses. We focus on the things that will not last into eternity and completely forget the ultimate gift that we've been offered through Christ. And that seems to be what Paul understood. That's why Paul, the man who was educated, the man who was respected, the man who had ambition, the man who was on the fast track to stardom within Jewish leadership. That's why he could be content sitting in a jail cell. Look at Philippians chapter three, verses seven and eight. Just one page before the passage we just read. Paul writes, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul's had it all. He's had the respect. He's had the future. He's had the promise. He's had the renown. He's had all of that stuff. And yet Paul says, you know, as I look back, all that stuff pales in comparison to what I have now with Christ. Paul didn't have much. He was sitting in a jail cell with a pen and a piece of paper, a few hymns that he might have heard about Christ that he could sing when it got dark or cold or when he was discouraged. But Paul had all that he really needed, and that was Christ. And he's content with that. He's done striving after mud pies. Instead, he's found the one gift that is truly worth it, the one gift that lasts into eternity. And that's what Paul knew. Look at Psalm 73, verses 1 through 3. I really like this psalm. We read in verse 1, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Jump forward to verses 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The reason I like this psalm so much is because in the beginning, the psalmist admits his covetousness. He admits to God that, yeah, I'm jealous of the people who have more than me. I'm jealous of the fact that they have more than me in spite of their wickedness. And here I am trying to do the right thing all the time, trying to honor you. And yet they have the things that I need and I'm jealous of it. But then later in the psalm, the psalmist reminds himself of the one thing that he really, truly needs. And that thing is God and God alone. St. Augustine writes, you have made for made us for yourself, O Lord. And our heart is restless until it rests in you. So my challenge for you this morning, pursue Christ. Stop striving for the things that you hope will make you content, but history has shown that they will all fall short. Strive for the one thing that can lead to contentment right now 
but it can lead to contentment in eternity as well. Don't covet after the mud pies. Don't covet after the things that pale in comparison compared to the surpassing glory that Paul sees through his relationship with Christ, through the surpassing glory of being with him in eternity. So calm your restless heart, not by getting more stuff, but by wanting more of Christ. Let's pray. Father, our eyes so often wander from the things that you've given us, and instead we focus on the things that we don't have, that we wish we had, that we tell ourselves would finally make us happy, would finally make us content. But I pray that we'll keep our eyes on you, the one thing that lasts into eternity, the relationship that is greater than anything we could possess or any other relationship that we could have, and that relationship is with your son, Jesus. God, you died on the cross for us. You shed your own blood. Your body was broken. And you willingly did that for our sake, to pay the punishment that we deserve for our sins. And God, we don't deserve that, but I pray that we will look to that for joy, not looking for the things that will never offer joy in eternity, but instead keeping our eyes looking at you. So God, this morning, we come to you as people who admit that So often we do covet after pointless things. But God, we want to desire you and to desire you alone and to desire your son Jesus above all else. And so I pray that your Holy Spirit would be working in us, that your word would convict us, that we can encourage one another to keep our eyes set on you at all times, no matter what else is going on in life, whether we're successful or whether we're sitting in a jail cell that we'll keep our eyes on you. We love you. We praise you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.